This is Ethan Siegel, and welcome back to the Starts With a Bang podcast. While the telescope was first invented in the early 1600s, it wasn't really until the 1700s that they started getting larger and larger, with more light-gathering power and the ability to survey more of the sky. In 1781, William Herschel made a serendipitous discovery. There was an object he saw that was moving from night to night relative to all the stars. That turned out to be Uranus, the first planet discovered beyond Saturn since antiquity. After the discovery of Uranus, larger and larger telescopes became routinely constructed as people began to wonder if there's one planet out there beyond Saturn, maybe there's another or more than one other. So what they did was they started looking. And even though those searches came up empty for decades, what they observed was Uranus was doing something really funny. It was moving at the speed that was not predicted by Kepler's laws and by Newton's laws. Instead, it was moving too quickly to start. For the first 20 years or so that we had observed it, it was moving faster than Kepler's laws predicted for its distance. Then it slowed down and it started moving at just the right speed. And finally, a little bit later, it started moving too slowly. So what was the cause of this? While some people were checking modifications of Newton's laws, there was a different explanation that wound up being correct. It was the scientist Urbain Le Verrier in the 1840s who figured out the solution to this problem. Uranus, he reasoned, would be moving at speeds different from what the laws of nature predicted if there were another planet out beyond it of significant mass that was pulling on it. It could be moving too quickly when we first started observing it because this planet was accelerating it in its direction of motion, was pulling it towards it. Then when all three of our worlds, Earth, Uranus, and Neptune lined up, it would then pull it in a direction we wouldn't observe. But finally, when Uranus overtook it and passed it, Neptune would pull it backwards, seeming to slow it down from our perspective. Based on his calculations, Le Verrier was able to predict exactly where this new planet would be in the sky. Just weeks later, after his communication was received, Johann Gall and his assistant Diorest looked for this and found it less than one degree from where Le Verrier had predicted it. Neptune, the next big planet out beyond Uranus, had just been discovered. The discovery of Pluto, however, was very different from that of the other worlds. Rather than understanding that there was some error in the motion of a planet, there, there really wasn't. The way Pluto was found was by a large survey in the sky. A Clyde Tombaugh was looking at what we call a blink comparator, which means you would take a photograph of one part of the sky on one night, and then a few days later, you would take another photograph of that same part of the sky. You would have one image hooked up to your left eye and the other hooked up to your right. So what you would do is you would blink one eye then the other, one eye then the other, and you would look for whether any objects had shifted over that time. If you saw something that moved relative to where all the stars were positioned, that would be something that was much closer 
and perhaps within our solar system. In January of 1930, Clyde Tombaugh discovered Pluto. Originally thought to be much larger than it was, follow-up discoveries taught us that Pluto was actually very small, tinier even than Mercury, the previous tiny planet in the solar system. And yet as we continued to look, there was nothing else out there. Throughout the rest of the 1930s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, we found absolutely nothing. Pluto seemed to be alone out in the outer solar system. Finally, in 1978, we discovered a second object out beyond Neptune. It was orbiting Pluto. It turned out that Pluto was a binary planet. In other words, it was connected to a partner where both were locked to one another so that the same face always faced one another. And the center of mass of both of them was actually outside of Pluto. It was between the two worlds. We called this second object Charon, the giant moon of Pluto. Again, for over 10 years, there was nothing else discovered. But beginning in the 1990s, we started to discover that Pluto and Charon were not unique. There were many other large objects out there in the theoretical Kuiper Belt. A Kuiper Belt is supposedly out beyond the last planets in the solar system. You should have a large, diffuse ring containing thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of objects anywhere between the size of a rock all the way up to the size of a small planet. This Kuiper belt contained objects that we now know as Eris, Makemake, Haumea, Quauwar, and others. So the discovery of this really showed us that Pluto wasn't all that unique. It was just on the relatively large size of the types of objects that were out there beyond Neptune. And serendipitously, we happened to discover it first. While it turned out that Eris had a moon, we discovered in the 2000s that there were actually four other moons around the Pluto-Charon system. Nix, Hydra, Styx, and Kerberos. These four other moons were kind of a surprise. It turned out that Pluto was a more complex planetary system than all of the worlds in the inner solar system. Finally, in 2006, the long-planned-for New Horizons mission, an actual mission to go and fly by and explore the Pluto system, was launched. After nine years through interplanetary space, it finally arrived at its destination, where it would fly by both Pluto and Charon, taking a number of large photographs of the sunlit side, and then would fly back behind Pluto and behind Charon, and would see them from the night side, would see them in eclipse, and would see, therefore, all the sunlight that shone through the atmosphere. For the first time, we'd be able to measure not only the surface composition, but also the atmospheric composition of an object out beyond Neptune. Just a few months after New Horizons was launched, however, back in 2006, the International Astronomical Union, the governing body for what things are officially named, finally defined the term planet.
and decided that there were only eight planets in our solar system, the four inner rocky worlds, the four gas giants beyond them, and that everything interior to those, the asteroids, everything between them, the centaurs, and everything external to the gas giants, all of the Kuiper Belt objects, including Pluto, were not planets after all. That my very educated mother just served us nine pickles was suddenly amended, and there were no pickles for anyone. But a name change isn't going to stop this outer world from being the rich, interesting world that it is. And so when New Horizons arrived and began taking data, there were a number of huge discoveries that came out of this. One was that there were actually no other moons left to discover. The four that we knew around the giant Pluto-Charon system, in addition to, of course, Charon, was it. That was all there was. The terrain of Pluto was a very, very big surprise. We found that there was a surface that had varying terrain. There were roughly flat regions, which seemed to be made of nitrogen ice. We're used to nitrogen being a gas at room temperature, and if you cool it down enough, it becomes a liquid. Well, the atmosphere on Pluto and the temperatures on Pluto are so severe that nitrogen is actually frozen solid. But on top of that, there are a bunch of ice mountains. Water ice seems to form mountains and floats on the nitrogen sea just like icebergs do here in Earth's oceans. So Pluto has these mountains that are thousands of meters high, thousands of feet high, just like we do on Earth, comparable to the Rocky Mountains, except they're made out of ice that floats on this nitrogen sea. And yet, despite this interesting varying terrain that suggests constant motion, constant changes, even precipitation on Pluto, when we looked at Charon, it was completely different. Despite being comparable in size to Pluto and out just as far, Charon was completely different, having no planes, no ice, in fact looking just like the surface of a world like the moon does completely devoid of features other than craters on it and perhaps slightly different colorations in regions. In addition, because of the sizes of these worlds having been measured from close-ups and their orbital properties, we can figure out another huge difference between Pluto and Charon, their densities. Whereas Pluto seems to be a world that's made out of about 70% rock and 30% ice, Charon, based on its density, seems to be made almost exclusively of ices. In other words, these two worlds, which are found in the exact same spot, the first two worlds ever discovered in the Kuiper Belt that orbit one another, they're made out of different things. They seem to have a different origin. Otherwise, there's no way that their elemental compositions would be so vastly different from one another. But perhaps the most exciting difference came when New Horizons flew into the shadow of both of these worlds. There was a famous picture that came back of Pluto where you could see 
the varied tiers in the atmosphere where you could see how lit up it was. And we discovered all sorts of interesting things about Pluto's atmosphere, including what it was made out of, how large it was, how dense it was. And there were a few surprises there. Of course, Pluto's atmosphere was filled with volatiles, where volatiles are the same particles that evaporate during the day side, rise up high into the atmosphere, and then can precipitate down at night. This explains why Pluto's surface appears to be active and covered in ice. In fact, it's speculated, although we didn't see it at the time, that it actively snows on Pluto relatively often. But no such image like that came back for Charon, and the reason why is kind of shocking. Whereas when you fly behind Pluto, you can see all the sunlight that filters through the atmosphere and bends towards you. When you fly behind Charon, you get absolutely none of that. There's no light that filters through Charon's atmosphere and can arrive at your spacecraft because Charon doesn't have an atmosphere at all. In other words, these two worlds are not only made out of different things, where one is a rock and ice combo and one is almost exclusively ice, they not only have different surface properties, where one has plains and mountains and weather, and the other one just seems to be an empty ball, they also have vastly different atmospheres, where Pluto's is you know, weak compared to Earth, but not completely absent, whereas if Charon has an atmosphere, it's less than one one billionth of what Earth's atmosphere is. These two worlds are really, really different. What all of these differences suggest is that Pluto and Charon came to be a binary planet, came to be close in and orbiting each other, not the same way the Earth and Moon did, where they formed from a collision, not the way Jupiter and its moons did, where they formed from the same primordial cloud, but rather more the way Neptune and its giant moon Triton did, where they had completely different origins and were only gravitationally captured over time. While there were still more differences to be found, like that Charon was much darker than Pluto, that Charon had a red pole, which was due not to iron, but to tholins, which are a class of chemical compound found in the outer solar system, and that Pluto has big plains regions devoid of craters, giving further evidence to the fact that Pluto's surface is changing, that it's resurfacing, is when we looked close up at these nitrogen ice plains on Pluto, we found something very surprising. There were regions where it's sublimating. There were regions where it starts to transition into the gas phase. But in some places where it does, it goes so far down that you can see what the surface of Pluto looks like below these volatile elements, below these elements that can boil off very easily. And what they found is looking down below this ice is the surface of Pluto looks just like Charon. What does all of this mean for the history of Pluto and Charon? 
first off, it very likely means that Charon was much more similar to Pluto, even though it formed differently, even though it was made predominantly of ice instead of mostly of rock, the outer layers of Pluto should have been very similar to Charon. Charon should have been full of these volatiles. Charon may have had snow and ice and resurfacing events and plains and mountains, just like Pluto does. But after this binary merger, after Pluto and Charon became a binary planet, the gravitational pull of Pluto seems to have ripped these volatiles off of Charon. Even out at that great distance from the sun, when you are in direct sunlight, these materials on your surface, the nitrogen ice, it can sublimate, it can rise up high above the surface of your world. And if you have a large gravitational mass nearby, something like Pluto, it can kick that atmosphere, it can kick those molecules out either into interplanetary space or possibly capture it for itself. In other words, Charon was once a Pluto-like world with an atmosphere with volatiles and probably with a rich, icy, changing surface. But over time, Pluto has stripped that away, and either Pluto has taken that atmosphere for itself or thrown it off into interplanetary space, or more likely, a combination of both. Sure, Pluto got affected too. Its atmosphere is much more tightly bound than we would have expected. In fact, the rate that Pluto's losing its atmosphere is less than 1% of what was predicted or modeled previous to New Horizons, and we found that it's much closer to the Plutonian surface than we would have imagined also. And finally, underneath Pluto's icy, volatile-rich surface is a very Charon-like world that appears to be a dull gray in color and probably, if we can ever see it, will turn out to be cratered with permanent features just like Charon has. While telescopes here on Earth and in Earth orbit continue to get bigger and better and our equipment continues to improve, there's still no substitute for actually going somewhere to explore it. That's how we've learned all that we have about Pluto, Charon, and why they're so different. The Starts With a Bang podcast is made possible thanks to our Patreon supporters, so I'd like to take the time to thank everyone donating at the $5 level and above. Bakhtiar, Robert J. Hansen, Thomas Sola, Denier, Igor Mitrofanov, Rafal Wojcik, Pedro Texera, Kathy Reese, Brian Terry, Danny, Dennis Arnaud, Alexander Marius, Guy Jin, Bob Wilson, Adam Rabung, Andrew Douglas, Weller Tractor Salvage, Richard Jousey, Amir Asasnik, Mark Bradshaw, Jim Cummings, Michael Mason, Sidney Atwood, Christopher Wetmore, Willie Keplinger, Harry Plumley, John Methot, Jose Enrique, Rachel Merritt, Nathan Hanna, Thomas All, Glenn McDavid, Nick McCann, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Daniel Aitken, Radek Nesbida, Patrick Dennis, Chris Hilly, Richard White, Joe Latone, DGE, John Seal, Fletch, Philip Radulovic, Nathan Heston, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Opachik. Thanks everyone for your support, and I'll see you back here next month for more Starts With a Bang.